Are you listening to Discovery Debrief? And uh, so did I. It's Jason Isaacs, who was, at some point, some version of Captain Lorca. Right now, I'm just a fan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Lower Decks, and more. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by two additional members of our bold panel of Star Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Hey! And Cicero Holmes. My intro has been death struck. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, for this episode, we're joined by a very special guest. He's a longtime comics historian, writer, and novelist who's created an abundance of captivating stories in some of our favorite shared universes, including Star Wars, Mass Effect, Halo, Planet of the Apes, the Marvel Comics universe, and of course, the Star Trek universe. In fact, just about a month ago, this man's latest prose novel was released in the universe that has brought us all together in the form of Star Trek Discovery, The Enterprise War, showing us what Captain Pike, Lieutenant Spock, and Commander Una were all up to during the events of the Federation Klingon War, as depicted in Discovery's first season. So, here to discuss that book and Star Trek at large with us is none other than author John Jackson Miller. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Oh, excellent. Well, we're really happy to have you. So um, first thing that I like to ask anybody that jumps in with us, and before we go into talking specifically about the book, I noticed that you got your start writing as an editor for trade magazines dedicated to the comics and tabletop gaming industries, but it looks like your biggest proverbial footprint is in the galaxy far, far away. You've written in both comics and prose across both the previous Legends EU continuity and now the official post-Disney Star Wars canon, and your contributions to Star Trek seem comparatively recent compared to most of your previous work. So if you don't mind, share with us your Star Trek story. How deep does your fandom go, and in terms of creating the stories, what helps to separate the Star Trek toy box from some of the others that you played in? Well, I was uh, born the night that uh, a piece of the action aired for the first time, so uh, I showed up the same time that Fizzben did uh, the uh, the card game. Uh, but it would be <laughs> it'd be a number of years before it actually you know would would see it. Of course, uh, I, I was not in vitro mm -hmm. you know watching the original series, uh, although that would have been interesting and and a plot for a story <laughs> sometime. I would imagine. Uh, you know, I probably my first uh, exposure to Star Trek would have been. Uh, just the reruns on TV syndicated. And uh, of course I was also seeing uh, the cartoons on NBC uh, as they were originally aired. Um, but, you know, it was something that, you know, all, always seemed to be kind of aimed a little bit over my head uh, at that age, uh, you know, you're being in the single digits. Uh, I was nine years old when Star Wars showed up. Uh, and so, you know, that, dominated my fandom uh up through uh you know the as those movies are coming out uh you know i begin to pick up a bit more star trek here and there and yeah you know, particularly once we get cable tv uh you know we've got uh, wrath of khan 
which is appearing you know every 13 minutes on HBO. Uh, and so I'm, I'm able to absorb that. And, uh, and by that point, I'm, you know, I'm able to get into some of the comics and, uh, I've gotten some of the novels, some of the, uh, I think the first, uh, the first novel I got, uh, I would have, I would have seen the log books in, you know, in my, uh, middle school library. Uh, but I would not probably buy a book until the Klingon Gambit, which I think is the third of the, you know, when they were doing the numbered pocketbooks editions. Uh, so, yeah, we're talking about early 80s there. Uh, and then when Star Wars goes away, more or less, after Return of the Jedi and sort of goes into hibernation, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, perfect cryogenic frozen sleep, uh, if you want to say that, uh, it it uh, it is... Uh, it's Star Trek that begins to you know take more of my uh, my time and interest, uh, particularly as we get uh, Search for Spock and uh, uh, Voyage Home uh, come out, and uh, and then finally you know Next Gen that gives me a chance to get on the ground floor of uh, a TV series and watch watch it as people did in the '60s as it's coming out, uh, and. Sure. You know, I, I, I'm into it uh, to an extent. It doesn't really catch fire for me uh, until, you know, that sort of moment where it kind of does for everybody uh, you know, in, in everything that's sort of downrange after uh, yesterday's Enterprise, uh, where, you know, we, we start to get, uh, you know, Riker grows the beard. We get the uh, we get the Borg. We get uh, we get the uh, best of both worlds. And uh, and probably most significantly for me, uh, we get into the Klingon arcs uh, that uh, are really developing Kronos and that lead to uh, you know much of what I would do in the Prey trilogy a number of years later. Uh, but so yeah, uh, pretty much right. by the time Star Wars comes back around, uh, you know I've probably spent more time with Star Trek <laughs> over those years uh, that than uh, than Star Wars stuff. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, so you mentioned that you, it caught fire for you at the, the height of, or as next generation was really kind of on the upswing. So uh, did you watch all the other shows as they were coming out as well? Uh, I did. It gets complicated uh, to an extent. It, it, it gets complicated as time goes on because uh, you know, I got, uh, I, I, I got a job with, uh, you mentioned trade magazines. I was the uh, editor of Comics Retailer, which later became Comics and Games Retailer, uh, in uh, in 1993. And so, you know, I was working nights and weekends, and uh, yeah, certainly I'm 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 keeping up with stuff as I can. Uh, but you know, by the time we get to say uh, Enterprise, yeah, I realize I missed the entire third season <laughs> because I was. Uh, at that point, I was uh, <laughs> well. I, at, at that point, I was. Uh, I had uh, a, a new child. I had uh, my second by that point, and I was also, in addition to the regular job, working on the magazines, which at that point included also Comics Buyer's Guide, the newspaper, and uh, and also Scry, the card game magazine. Uh, you know, I was also freelancing for Marvel comics at that point. Uh, and, you know, Iron Man was coming out every two weeks for, uh, for the spring of, of 2004. 
So I didn't see any TV at all. And, you know, I, I recently joked, I have no idea whether there was a Super Bowl that year. <laughs> I, was, right. I was absolutely <laughs> locked away. And, you know, now it's easier to, you know, kind of pick stuff back up. Uh, although, as in the case of, of um, uh, as, as in the case of uh, Enterprise, uh, you know, I still have yet to actually uh, pick up the entire series again from the start. Mm-hmm. I think that's understandable considering the different directions that you're stretching yourself into. Uh, well, so what is it, uh, or what do you think rather about Discovery as a series so far? And what's your take on uh, how it's positioning itself for a massive time jump for for season three? Because I imagine that stuff kind of has to start entering your mind, especially if you plan on potentially contributing to the franchise in the future. Well, uh, you know, the thing about Discovery is, you know, when it's set, we're about, uh, you know, we're a decade before Kirk. Um, and it kind of juggles the, the rules a bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that I had to get used to uh, as I you know, sort of made the transition from writing Star Wars to Star Trek. Uh, and, and actually, you know, the, the part I skipped over here was that I, I actually pitched Star Trek before I pitched Star Wars. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, I, I did, uh, you know, I, I wrote a story for, uh, intended for Strange New Worlds back when that was going on, um, uh, which you know, was a close but no cigar kind of a thing. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but then, you know, I had a, uh, Star Trek, uh, uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers story, which was accepted. Uh, but then the, the series ended before the book could actually come out. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I was, I was pitching for Star Trek even before I started doing Star Wars, but then I have this period where there's about a decade there where I'm writing Star Wars. One of the things that I had to sort of reacclimate to since I was writing in the next gen era, uh, a lot of the dynamic in Star Wars is you've got characters that don't necessarily want to be together. Uh, they're thrown into a situation. Uh, you know, they they don't intend to be heroes. Uh, they bicker. They argue. Um, you know, Star Wars, the original movie, uh, is nothing but, uh, you know, one-liners from characters that are arguing with each other. Uh, and I right. I could not bring... <laughs> I could not bring that dynamic into Star Trek because, uh, you know, that's 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 one of those things with uh, uh, with uh, you know with you know Roddenberry wanted is we've pretty much wiped out most of the the bad workplace uh, situations. Uh, you know, we we you know people are not picking on each other all the time. They're not insulting each other. They're not doing any of that. Not in Starfleet anyway. With the aliens, they can do it all day long. Um, but with discovery, we're still getting to that point where you know there's there's you're able to have more interpersonal conflict uh, you know, earlier on, and by also having the Klingon War happen at the same time, uh, that sort of uh, doubly uh, you know makes it a different feeling series than any of the other things that uh, that have come before. And so, you know, we have that in Discovery. Uh, it catches fire for me uh, once they go to the Mirror Universe. Uh, and, um, you know, of course, you know, that's always a winner uh, whenever, whenever you do that. And uh, in, this, in this particular case, you know, it, it was sort of interesting that, you know, we have this, this, uh, this dark mirror of the, uh, 
Starfleet world of the Federation universe uh, in a particular time where things are already fairly dark for the prime universe. Uh, So, you know, you do get a situation where Mm -hmm. it's possible for somebody in the mirror universe to actually hide out and not be noticed uh, if they want it to be. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, when, when, when that happened as well, and, uh, you know, I try not to get into spoilers, uh, on anything if I could help it. Uh, but when that happened as well, that was something where, uh, I went, yeah, I, I love that bit because I, I, you know, over in star Wars in Knights of the old Republic, I spent, uh, you know, three and a half years of a comic series with a traitor hidden in the cast. And the clues were there all along. Hmm. And the series had to work. Um, it was different in comics because we never knew when the series would get canceled. So everything I wrote had to work both ways uh, in case I never got to resolve that storyline. You know, it, it that character's behavior had to be explained by other things. Uh, and, you know, what we see with Discovery is they're taking advantage of the fact that they had, you know, they had their number of episodes, uh, you know, you know, solidly determined beforehand, made them all at once. Uh, you know, they can do something in terms of storytelling uh, that you could not necessarily do uh, with regular series television. Uh, you know, we, we all remember, well, I don't say we all remember, everyone of a certain age, uh, that's in science fiction, remembers Babylon 5 when uh, J. Michael Straczynski gets to the point where it looks like he's not going to get a fifth season. And so he rushes all of the endings to to wrap in season four. And actually that tends to work because uh, it just, uh, it, you know, s- sort of speeds up the, uh, uh, you know, the tempo. Uh, it makes it more frenetic. Uh, and and that, that worked out. Uh, but you know, with Star Trek Discovery, they don't have that to worry about. They're, they don't have that concern of, well, you know, will they pick this up after the, the, you know, the back half of the season or whatever? Um, you know, they, they have a good idea that, yeah, they're going to be doing these additional stories or that they're going to have 13 or 15 or however many episodes it is to tell their storyline. Uh, and so you can do something, you know, pretty uh, daring like that. Uh, like, uh, you know, hiding a, a traitor in the cast for that long. I think that's really cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. I guess the, the, the big question uh, in, in the room is what is your favorite Trek television show and favorite movie? I know that you mentioned a couple, but what is yeah, the definitive um, list for you? I think uh, Next Generation is special for me because it was the one that I got to see from the start and that I got to see while it was coming out and where I did not have to, you know, suffer the problems that, well, I mean, I cannot tell you for certain that I have st- that I have seen every original series episode <laughs> because sure, the sure. way it was presented <laughs> to me, the way, it's pre- the way it was presented to all of us over the years uh, is you know th- these shows weren't serialized because they expected that the syndicators would show them in random order, uh, and in fact that's what they did a lot of the time. They would show them in random order, and um, you know it's always cool. Every so often you'll see something that you haven't seen before, and uh, yeah, I'm a bit I'm a bit reluctant to stream the entire series just because I'll I'll go through it all and that'll be the end. Uh, no more discoveries like that. 
but yeah, so I mean, <laughs> with the uh, with the uh, next gen, yeah, that was one where it was it was coming out while I was in college uh, and uh, grad school. I was able to see it all uh, and and able to see particularly yeah probably the high water mark is is uh, reunification where you know it actually is. You know, you've got an episode coming out that is teasing something that's about to happen in Star Trek Six the next week. Uh, I thought that was just a, a, a really you know, cool case of synergy. Um, you know, as for the movies, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it, specific favorites. It gets it gets dicey. I uh, yeah, everybody sure. has this thing about odds and evens. Uh, you know, uh, until <laughs> until Insurrection came along. I was really big on the threes, so I loved three and I loved six. Uh, <laughs> and it's hard not to like, you know, two and four, obviously, but I like three and six a lot more than other people do. And so uh, when I did the Prey trilogy, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the the you know, the main character that we are dealing with in that is Krug and, and his heirs. Uh, and uh, then, of course, you know, what do we have happen in the Prey trilogy? We have a Star Trek Six-like political debacle, disaster happen on Starfleet's watch, but instead of it being Kirk's problem, it's actually Picard's problem. Well, you're you're speaking my language because Six is my favorite of the movies, so uh, I I I appreciate that. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, what is your least favorite episode of The Next Generation? Because <laughs> I have favorite. a thing where... So I have a thing where I try to convince people that the worst episodes of The Next Generation are not that bad. So okay. <laughs> I I could have done without uh, Tasha Yar being killed by the oil slick. I was not... I was not. I was not real okay, big. That's on hard that. to argue with. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's that's pretty understandable. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, so I always like to ask people, uh, especially that work on these properties, a little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, because as someone who contributes and has contributed voluminously to the Star Wars canon, that quote unquote counts everything as opposed to the Star Trek universe that doesn't do that. Does that change your approach at all into the way that you actually write for Star Trek? Because I would think that that might offer you slightly more latitude in terms of what you can do and characters you can use, but maybe not. Is there any comparison to the uh, rigidity, I guess, of what you're allowed to do when comparing CBS with Lucasfilm? Um, A lot of it has to do with whether something is still in production. Um, And so... Okay, look, we're doing you know the Prey trilogy, which is mostly set in 2386. Uh, so this was years after uh, you know Nemesis. The time I'm writing those books, there is nothing on the horizon. I don't think CBS All Access was even on yet. Uh, you know, there was no you know Discovery mm-hmm. was not an access for sure, uh, and and certainly there was no notion that there would ever be a Picard show because uh, you know I would have. I think I took that contract in 2014. So we're talking a good ways back. Uh, and so when I, I said I, I want to you know, take over the universe for about three months of, of time in the timeline, uh, you know, that, that was something where I had a, a bit more freedom. Obviously, I couldn't do anything that uh, you know, violated the spirit of the characters. 
And in fact, there was an, an early draft of Prey uh, where, uh, you know, the character of Ardra uh, was uh, depicted as uh, having killed people with her illusions. They said, no, we can't do that because uh, we never saw her do that in the TV show. And you want to stay true to that spirit. And that's what we did. And what we did instead ended up being better, I think. Um, but you know, a lot of it has to do with whether something is in production, whether something's in motion. Uh, you know, I have a book coming out, uh, I think, uh, in October it is from, uh, Dynamite Comics. I did the 40th anniversary trilogy, uh, 40th anniversary comic series, uh, for, uh, Battlestar Galactica. And that was the original series Galactica. And, uh, you know, with Universal, it was pretty much like, go, go do what you want to do because it was, it was not the case. Uh, and this is a comic series that, that started last year at the 40th anniversary. So, you know, the collection is going to be out, you know, just in time for, you know, what would have been Galactica 1980 to have come on, uh, 40 years of the past. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was something where I was able to use everything I wanted to use. Uh, and not collide with anything else because there wasn't anything else out there. All of that said, um, you know, I still try to not you know, collide with things if I can help it. Um, you know, nobody pretends that the you know the novels that came out from Pocket in the eighties and the nineties, and the comics that came out from DC uh, and uh, and the various others are necessarily, uh, you know, something that we have to worry about. And yet there are references in Enterprise War to cast members from, say, the Star Trek Early Voyages comics that came out from Marvel uh, during the, you know, the heartbeat and a half that it had the Star Trek license back uh, in 1996-97. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, why do I do it? I do it for the same reason that people created the ex- the expanded universe in Star Wars to begin with. That wasn't something that came from Lucasfilm. It, it came it came because the authors were reading each other's works, and they were putting in you know, Easter eggs. I mean, you know, you know, where did it all really begin? It, it begins with uh, in in Star Wars. It begins with Archie Goodwin, who's writing both uh, the Marvel comic series. And the comic strip in the newspaper, uh, where he um, is writing an adaptation in the comic strip of Brian Daly's novel uh, Han Solo at Star's End, hmm. and so concepts from Han Solo at Star's End end up filtering into that comic strip, uh, and and it goes from there. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of fun stuff. I mean, it is it is. <laughs> Uh, it's something where it kind of came about organically. Uh, and again, you know, with Star Wars also, uh, when Timothy Zahn is starting to do the Heir to the Empire trilogy, uh, what did they do? They just sent him the role-playing game that West End did, uh, which had all this world building that was already done. Uh, and and they said, why not? Just go ahead and use it. And so I find myself doing that all the time. I mean, I've there are... Um, you know, there are bits in Enterprise War which are directly advised by Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, uh, by uh, the Franz Joseph uh, uh, yeah, blueprints, uh, some of the very old things that are out there. And whether they're official or whether they're correct or whether they're whatever, it's just fun. 
and uh, it's sure. it's better to draw on something than nothing. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I can totally agree with that. Well, um, yeah, I mean, that just it sounds like it's fun to me. I can see how some writers might see that as uh, an impediment, but it, I mean, these are these are very rich worlds. So I'm glad that you you can see the fun in that. We've also well, spoken with no, a couple nobody, of other nobody writers. Nobody constrains of, me to um, it, though. I mean, no, oh, nobody, oh. nobody forces nobody forces me sure, to do sure, it that sure. way. Yeah. So I mean, it. Uh, yeah, right. and and yeah. I have also said that stories are more than just how they connect, uh, or, or or how they how they put together. So mm-hmm. yeah, I I, uh, I particularly uh, if it's a if it's a book like this. Um, where I do know the stuff, <laughs> I'm I'm a lot more willing to put the connections in there uh, than say I've done video game comics uh, and short stories for Halo, where I can tell you right now I don't have that universe cold. <laughs> I don't I don't know everything. I'm I'm terrible at the game, so it's 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 something where it it is good that they make it so it's possible to write these books, uh, you know, without necessarily knowing everything. But when you when you can do it, it works out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, no, that's that, that's really interesting. I I hadn't really ever thought of it in that kind of a perspective before. Oh, that's cool. Well, uh, we have spoken with a couple of other writers of discovery novels, specifically um, Dayton Ward, who wrote Drastic Measures, and Dave Gallanter, who's writing the Paul Stamets focused novel that's coming out in December. Both of them told us about some of the involvement of the show to, show's writer's room to one degree or another. Dayton is friends with Kirsten Beyer, who's a prominent Trek writer. And Dave said he had access to season two scripts before the episodes aired. Can you share what your process was like in aligning the events of the Enterprise War with what had already aired and what was still to come as you were writing? Well, uh, you know, Kirsten as well uh, was where this process started. Uh, you know, she let us know where would be a good place to, you know, put a book. And, um, you know, same way with the, the book that I'm working on currently of which I could say nothing other than that. It is a discovery book, (laughs) but it's, Oh yeah, that was, we, we announced that at Vegas. Um, uh, but we can say nothing other than that. It's a discovery book for 2020. Uh, but it's, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, she suggested where would be a good place to put this book. And, kind of what you know they wanted to see in it in terms of uh you know we'd like to bring it from you know let's get it from the Jeffrey Hunter version of uh Pike uh to the character that we're going to see played by Anson Mount uh and let's also have a couple of things in here which directly plug into the TV series uh such as uh, you know, mentions of Spock's relationship with Burnham. Uh, and then of course, uh, you know, we've got, uh, we've got a more direct tie in with, you know, Spock actually having the incident happen that we later see on screen. Um, you know, as to, as to what specifically I was supplied, uh, you know, I really, you know, it's one of those things, somebody says, why, why don't you just say more about what you get in advance? Uh, one of my problems is I'm working on several different uh, franchises at a time uh, that all have different rules in terms of uh, you know <laughs> right. what you could disclose about you know a, a, as the CIA calls it sources and methods. Uh, so right. <laughs> you know, I, for example, last year I had last last year I had uh, you know uh, 
you know, two Disney movie, uh, the, the two Disney movies that came out this year, I wrote originally gra- original graphic novels for them. So uh, that was Dumbo and the Lion King. Uh, and, and both of those, you know, the lids were on really tight because Star Wars, Disney, Disney, anything is a very tight ship, uh, as far as that kind of stuff mm-hmm. goes. So I don't say anything and I, I've just gotten to where I just don't say anything about anything because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I don't want to get confused and, and realize, oh yeah, wait a minute. I'm, I, yeah, this is that franchise. So I, I try not to get into too much detail, uh, until it's many years after the fact, uh, and you know, the, the t- TV show has been out for a decade or the movie has been out for a decade or something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I will say that a, a lot of the stuff for, uh, for Battlestar Galactica, I had to actually, you know, do that, uh, do that research on my own and, and send the artist, uh, visual, uh, visual references to make sure, to make sure that he didn't get the 2003 and 1978 versions of everything mixed up. They're quite different. Uh. <laughs> oh Yeah. <laughs> Well, so, they're different to the eye of somebody who saw the original. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. So, uh, John, you know, there was there was one thing. Um, there were several things that happened uh, when I was reading the Enterprise War um, that I found remarkable. But but one thing that kind of sticks out to me is the fact that despite me knowing that the main protagonist, the, the, the crew of the enterprise would survive, or at least, at least the principal players that we knew, um, that they would survive. I still felt the drama. Um, I still felt angst, uh, when, when reading about the, the different things that were happening during the course of the book. So that, that is definitely, uh, a success that you can, you can hang your hat on. Um, the question is, how do you do that? Thank like, you. how do you how do you create that drama? How do you uh, how are you able to create the suspense, even though the reader, you know, the assumption is that the reader knows the source material, the reader knows the the uh, the end game for many of these characters, and so how do you yeah. create that that suspense for them? Well, this is one of those things, you know. Uh, my my mother uh, just moved up to uh, Wisconsin from uh, from where I grew up, uh, and so I've been I've been showing her all the TV shows she likes to see in movies and things. And you know, she is one of the, one of these people who always wants things spoiled for her. She wants to know that everybody everybody's going to come out all right in the end. Sure. She wants to know the ending as we're going along. Uh, <laughs> do they get married? Uh, does he does he get out of this? Does, do, what whatever. And and actually, her favorite show is Perry Mason because every single episode except for one ends the same way. Uh, there's right. there's no drama. There's no crisis. It's all about just how you get there. Uh, and it's very comforting. It's comfort television, and I can I can dig that. Um, but in something like this, yeah, you're right. We all know what happens to Pike. We all know what happens to Spock. Uh, you know, we all know that the Enterprise, you know, you, you eventually gets out of whatever this thing is. Right. But what you don't know is how. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly, you know, one of the things that you've got going on is uh, unless uh, you're, you're, well, actually, you can, it, I guess it works this way in an ebook. And it probably the only place it doesn't work quite like that is in the audiobook, where you're holding the book and you realize, oh my gosh, we're four fifths of the way through this thing. How are they going to get out of this? 
right, and you're right. and you're not so much concerned about how the characters get out, but how the author is going to get the characters out, <laughs> yes. uh, because obviously. <laughs> That's where the suspense is. And right. that's where the suspense is for me too, because I'm usually getting close to the end of my word count. And I'm like, how do I do this? Um, but it is, it is the case where, um, you know, I, 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 a lot of the time uh, I will seek to write a final few scenes uh, for my resolution uh, where I'll try to wrap uh, relatively quickly. So we still have a good deal of drama going on. Uh, you know, fairly late in the book. Uh, and, and th- it, then it's just a matter of, uh, it, it, you know, that's, that's really craft at that point because, uh, yeah, if it ends up being, uh, you know, what was the old, uh, 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 you know, the old, the old joke in the, uh, in the fat Albert cartoon where they, where they're watching the cartoon. Oh yeah. Brown Hornet. Brown the Hornet. Brown and, and they naturally escape. And they naturally escape unharmed. Yes. It's like, it's, it's how they resolve every cliffhanger. It's one right. sentence. Right. They naturally escape unharmed. And every episode of Batman you ever saw on the 1966 show, you know, they get out of whatever the cliffhanger is in one you know minute. Uh, so they can get on to the next the rest of the show. You don't want to have it happen that fast. You don't want to have it be resolved that fast. But if you construct it right, you can have multiple storylines culminate in the same place at the same time uh, and have everything come together. So in Enterprise, where we have this sequence where, you know, we've got we've got, uh, you know, Pike with his arc. He's in one place. Una, number one, with her arc and her characters. She's someplace else. Spock is in a third place. Connolly is in a fourth place. Right. And. You know, what do we do in that last section? It's we we put Humpty Dumpty back together again and and we pay it off, pay it off, pay it off, pay it off. Um and you know, depending on how, how the book is set up, uh you know, I when I wrote the Prey trilogy, I realized there are like nine payoff scenes in that final sequence. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I was actually way, way over deadline when I was writing it. So I was turning those chapters in every day. Uh, and I, it was amazing that it flowed as fast as it did because I realized, oh, this, this book has like eight different ending scenes. And cause we have so many characters in this book, but I had moved all the pieces into the proper place. So the dominoes were right there to go bang, 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 bang. Right. Uh, and you know, when you start writing a book, by no means do you think that is going to happen. In fact, you're in terror. Uh, this book that I'm on right now, I know that by the time I get to the end of it, you know, I'll have that feeling of, okay, yeah, here we go. This bit is paying off. This bit is paying off. This bit is paying off. Uh, and and the suspense will, you know, will keep rolling through the book like that. Um, but uh, But, you know, when you're starting a... Uh, a trilogy uh, that was a third of a million words almost. Uh, yeah. You don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> You're right. very concerned <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, you know, speaking, speaking of the enterprise war, and I don't know, Chris, um, how much we're going to get into spoiler territory here. So I will try and keep my stuff as, as spoiler free as possible, unless we're spoiling. Uh, let's, let's go high level, high level. Uh, let's try, let, let's try not to go sure. into okay. too deep. Of so, specifics. um, so I'll, I'll say, um, 
you're uh John, you were able to do something that I think is probably the envy of uh probably a lot of writers in in sci-fi that you know fans of these very expansive sci-fi uh, uh science fiction fandoms and and canons um that are around which is you were able to create two new species well well actually i guess several new species but but a a faction and a new species um how much leeway That's did you right. have? How much leeway did you have in terms of um, making those, you know, creating creating those characters and uh, and the characteristics and the backstory and everything else? Or was it a collaborative e- effort between you and and some of the guys at CBS and in the writers' room? Once we had the broad strokes of what would happen to the characters uh, or what they would go through, what they would be feeling during this book. Uh, and we knew that we wanted a sequence where you know Pike and Spock would be bonding, uh, as we see in sort of that shipwreck section. Right. Uh, but you know, when we got to the villains, you know the 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 combatants in this war that that were there were in, uh, that's pretty much all oh, mine. Nice. And uh, that was some that was something where I wanted to just tell a pure military science fiction story in the middle of Star Trek. Um, you know, we're, we've got this war that's going on with the Klingons, but, you know, a, a Starfleet war looks a lot different than a lot of the other military sci-fi, you know, sort of engagements that you see. Right. And, yeah, you know, I wanted to come up with an outfit uh, in the Boundless that, uh, you know, it has a long tradition uh, you know, they've got their own jargon. They've got their own, uh, you know, their own uh, you know, rivalries that they have that they that are going right. on. They have their own a procedures. Firm. I wanted us to, yeah, a firm. That's right. I wanted I wanted us to land in the middle of them doing what they normally do, right. and uh, and you know, we would sort of we would sort of realize that uh, this has been going on for a long time, uh, and uh, I I wanted to you know, have it feel a bit different than uh, all of the other, uh, you know, there's so many military science fiction stories I've done. I mean, look, I've done armored characters from Iron Man to Mandalorians to, uh, I have a book of my own called Overdraft. Uh, You know, there's just all kinds of different ways to do uh, armored soldiers. In fact, I just did them in that Battlestar Galactic comic series. Uh, so that they're, you know, uh, not, not even to mention, you know, stormtroopers. Uh, but I, I wanted to do something where, um, you know, the, the actual outfits that they're in, uh, is secondary, uh, in interest to, you know, how they operate, uh, what they're going around, what they're doing and how they integrate the people that they grab. Um, I wrote the Mandalorian Wars period uh, of Star Wars in uh, the comic series called Knights of the Old Republic, uh, which is now available in these big three giant volumes uh, from uh, from Marvel. Uh, these epic collections for uh, the Old Republic is what they call it. Uh, and and in those, I tangle with this problem that I kind of was cr- you know given by the video game of. How does this nomadic, you know, uh, honor-driven, uh, you know, group of uh, you know, armored characters 
take over the galaxy or nearly do so over the course of about three years. Uh, and I had to come up with all of these mechanisms and war forges and, you know, uh, uniform, uh, uniform uniforms, because again, all the Mandalorians before that, they all look, they all looked uh, different. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't feel like I really had, uh, you know, the, the leeway there, given what else had been established to kind of do it entirely my own way. And here I, I was able to, uh, this idea of, uh, you know, these waves, these, these, these large, um, you know, sort of division level units that, uh, are operating independently from one another, but, uh, clearly have some sort of, uh, networking between them, uh, and cooperation between them. Uh, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, like all of, all of the armies in the theater in Europe, uh, without, uh, without the, uh, Supreme headquarters being able to tell them what to do. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought that was interesting and I wanted, uh, a large part of the book to, uh, you know, show them and what they were doing and how the enterprise people integrate into it. Uh, because I wanted the Connolly character in particular, uh, him and Baladon, I wanted them to get the whole experience. Right. Uh, and, and I wanted to show how over the course of the basic, yeah, this, this book takes place over the course of a year. That's a right. lot of time. Yeah. I wanted to try to, uh, I wanted to try to, you know, show uh, credibly how somebody like Connolly could kind of end up not being indoctrinated, but he decides, all right, you know, this is my life. I've been drafted by the space alien army. Uh, I got a deal. I got I got to figure out how to do this. Uh, I'm not going to escape uh, because I don't think anybody else survived. Uh, so, uh, you know, it from his point of view, uh, you know, he does what he thinks is the logical thing. And, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of this uh, whole book is about, you know, we're in this, nebula but the fog of war is everywhere nobody knows you know pike doesn't know where una is uh you know nobody knows that spock is even out there until they see him outside one day uh, and <laughs> and uh you know and again that really helps us set it all up in the end and so it's a unique kind of story uh in terms of uh, you know, I having that much time to play with, um, you know, it, it it allowed it to be multiple personal voyages that would, you know, go you know, off in other directions and then intersect. Well, uh, and, you know, I, I would also say that um, you did a really good job of making the boundless, you know, so so minor spoiler for the Enterprise War, um, it really kind of sets everything up is is the boundless is this is this faction that comes in and um they're fighting a war and they basically will raid another ship, any kind of stray ship that they find or people that they find and conscript them into their army to help fight this war that they're in. And uh, you did a really good job, I think, of despite the fact that the Boundless is essentially kidnapping these people and and forcing them to fight, 
um, justifying a why they were doing it and b making them show showing a level or, or creating a level of empathy for why they decided to to make the choices that they've made. And that's always difficult to do. And I, I'm, I, if we pulled it off, I'm, I'm delighted. Uh, you know, I, I have their, you know, the intention was always that, you know, Pike would show up at the end and say, okay, you guys no. Uh, <laughs> even if you do the right thing in the end, even if you, do, even if you do the right thing in the end, we're not going to reward you for all that you've done in the past. Uh, but even, you know, Connolly is, is going throughout he's he's going you know yeah this is not what i this is this is not a good thing for us to be doing um and uh and you know they we have that sort of feeling of um you know it i i don't i don't know that the you know that the boundless even you know even uh, Cormigan, I don't know that she necessarily feels remorse at what's going on, uh, but she's just exhausted. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, I think I think she's uh, because we've kind of made it plain there that she's a long from a long lived species. She's been out there 70, 80 years, however long we had it. Uh, and it's been inconclusive battle one after the next, after the next, after the next. And, um, you know, again, she has no particular sympathy for the recruits, as you, as we call them, that, that she's bringing in. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, she's, she's, she has seen enough to know that she has seen too much, as they say in the, uh, in the, uh, in the baseball movie. Uh, uh, you know, she's just, she's just had it. And, you know, we kind of balance that against somebody who is wholly, wholly, wholly amoral or immoral in the, in the case of Baladon, uh, who I love. And I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's in the book. And I, I'm really glad that he was voiced by, uh, uh, by Robert Petkoff. He did a fantastic uh, As I suggested, because so, I, I said, I said, this guy would be played by Max von Sydow. Uh, this is somebody, he has a tremendous vocabulary and he's very erudite, but he's also talking about eviscerating people and it's just joyful for him. And it's it's uh and so he and he just nails that all throughout. So uh, and he never he never gets upset. At least that I hear about it. Uh, that that I'm making him do some of these difficult voices. Although I know he was really tired of doing Krug because uh, Krug hurts the voice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, back when we were doing the Prey trilogy. Because because that's, that's you know, really give funny. me Genesis. Oh my gosh, give me Genesis. I mean, that's just a very very hard voice to do. Yeah. So I um, while we're talking about kind of the plot, while I was reading Enterprise War, I was really thinking like this feels like an episode of Star Trek. Like I could just like I could just see like this being like a, a two parter or you know yeah. an entire like season of Star Trek or something, and I. You're, um, you mentioned that you write in a lot of a lot of different like sort of universes. And so I'm wondering how for you, how do you make something feel like Star Trek or like what are the elements that uh, you include to make something feel like Star Trek or is that something that you don't do consciously or or how how does that work for you? Well, you kind of know whether it fits or not. Um, you know, the. I, I, I will say I tried to make this like a season because I knew it would take place during the entire span of season one. So I kind of had up in front. 
you know, this is going to be a, a story that's going to have different phases. So we we have that section up front, which is deliberately, people will say it starts slow. It's supposed to start slow because we have to establish this section where, you know, they're, you know, Pike and everybody are upset about being left out of the war. Um, it's a short section, but we get, we, we do have it. Um, you know, what we, what we kind of do is we, we, when we're approaching something like this, we say as the writers, um, you know, what fits this world in terms of, is it too, uh, you know, if you're doing Star Wars, uh, is there too much science in what you're writing about? Because if there is, you can't do it. Um, We don't get into, uh, you know, highly technical explanations for things. Uh, You know, Star Wars, when tech speak is spoken, it's gobbledygook. uh, But, you know, nobody, you know, Tell me, tell me the name of an engineer in Star Wars off the top of your head, and it's not mm. easy to do. Uh, you know, it, you'll have to you have to go off into the expanded universe or into into uh, into something else. Uh, you know, maybe the people who put together the Death Star. Uh, you know that 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 that's you have to go several layers outward to get to something like that. Um, and so with Star Trek, though. You can actually get into questions like I've got a whole section here asking whether the Enterprise will float. Uh, and and if it were floating, how would you get it upright? How would you get it off world again? How could you do these things? And, you know, you're talking about well, methane. You're talking about, you know, Titan, uh, the, the, the moon of Saturn. You're talking about real life things. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the specific strategy that they use to get out of the one situation that they're in is something that, you know, I, I, I talked with, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a friend of mine, a scientist, uh, brain type friend of mine, uh, who, who does, uh, does, we, you know, we, we used to kind of have these debates back in high school and college. Uh, yeah. How would you do this? What would, what would be the physical ramifications? How would this work? Uh, and you could put that in Star Trek because Star Trek, even though we have dilithium and trilithium, and I'm sure somebody's going to invent quadrilithium one day, um, Star Trek is also a universe where real things have uh, physical properties that at least must obey the you know, the laws either of physics or the pseudo physics that have been created by. Uh, the Star Trek universe. This is why when I'm doing a book, uh, like the very first thing I did, which was the ebook uh, absent enemies for the title line, um, uh, which incidentally has a very, very cool enterprise war connection uh, that people will figure out in retrospect. I think um, that's a story where, you know, the whole bit about it is, uh, you know, the, the episode where Jordy and Roe end up phasing through the, uh, through the decks of the Enterprise, the the inspiration for that whole story was how does that work? How how does what how do how what what how does that function? Uh, what what would happen if you were uh, in a situation like that? And could you use a situation like that to, for example, let two civilizations coexist in the same space? And what if those civilizations were at war? And it sort of, sort of goes from there. Uh, you would never use that as a springboard. Uh, for um, you know Star Wars uh, or even something like Galactica, 
you know, which is, you know, built around uh, a much different, uh, a much different premise. Um, you know, uh, Galactica is just very simply, uh, for example, Galactica, what it would feel like is what it is, which is it's the final unfilmed season of Baba Black Sheep, uh, <laughs> Black Sheep Squadron, uh, the, 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 the uh, the airplane uh, show about Pappy Boyington and his misfits. Uh, it is no mistake that the uh, the script editor for the last season of uh, of of uh, of, uh, of of Black Sheep Squadron goes on to be the script editor for uh, Battlestar Galactica. That's Donald Belisario, who would later on go on to do Quantum Leap. Uh, they're pretty much using the same stories between. You know, World War Two island hopping. You know the guys that are friends flying around in airplanes uh, and crash landing on the island of the week. Well, that's exactly what Galactica is. They're crash landing on the planet of the week, uh, and you know, just visiting whatever set Universal happens to have available. Uh, but that's what a that's what one of those stories feels like. And so, you know, if if you're gonna tell a story like that. Uh, you know, there, there are not a whole lot of Star Wars, you know, we, we, we you know, we were, we're, uh, you know, we're crash landing and winding up in the middle of a Western, uh, <laughs> you know, stories because it just feels different. And again, same with Star Trek. You kind of know what it, you kind of know when you're in a Star Trek TV show or when you're in a Star Trek movie, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, you know the the things that are important to the characters, the way the characters talk, uh, the things that are important in the characters' lives—they're just different. Star Trek. We almost never care about energy. We never care about power. Um, Star Trek is a you know the, the the basic conceit of Star Trek at the beginning is what if energy costs nothing to create? Uh, you know, well we have no economy. We have no no anything other than. Uh, we're going to go exploring. We're going to go expanding knowledge because we're no longer going to be trying to, uh, you know, manufacture and sell Mercedes Benzes to each other because, well, anybody can have one because we'll just replicate it. Right. Uh, you know, it, it, it it's a different feeling. You once you've if you live in the universe with the characters, you kind of know what story feels like it's in the universe, and yeah, that's something where even as a kid I knew, um, you know, there was a comic book an issue of the original Marvel Star Wars series where they discover a living spaceship. And I was like, even at age 12, I was like, you know, this is a nice story. It doesn't fit. This is a story that probably should have ended up being over the Star Trek comic. Mm. Some of the remarkable things that have happened in, uh, again, monumental things that I think happened in, in this book, uh, so you know, we talked about the fact that you've you were able to create new races, um, but but in addition to creating new races, you gave us our deepest and best glimpse into a character that we've known for fifty years, but haven't really known, um, and and our deepest look into number one into Una. Um, you've created a backstory for her. Uh, I mean, you've called her Una more than anyone has ever in, in the history of Star Trek. Uh, so, so that was remarkable how, uh, and, and of course there's, there is a, a thing that happens during the course of, uh, this book 
that I won't spoil for other people that is monumental. Um, and it, and it, and it provides a way, it provides a vehicle for us to kind of, uh, split the groups, um, from, from each other. Um, but, but it is, it is monumental nonetheless. How excited were you? Were these things, first off, were these things that you knew ahead of time that you were going to be able to do, um, spend time with, with number one and kind of develop her backstory and, and the other thing that will go unmentioned? And, um, how excited were you when, (laughs) when, when you, when you realized that these were things that you were going to be able to do? Um, you know, I, I knew that I needed to have, you know, sort of the cast divided and I knew how I was going to do that. And, you know, that the, the, the method, which we won't discuss was absolutely something that was in just about every version of the plot that I came up with. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to have, um, I wanted to have Una, First of all, I needed I needed to have her called Una because uh, I, I you just can't say number one, number one, number one, number one all the time. Especially, uh, especially as much as you were going, you were talking about her. Well, and and you know it, when it's in her own thoughts too. I right. mean, it just yeah. and, and so you know, fortunately, Una had already been named in the other novels years years earlier. Uh, and you know, we went with the title or went with the name, uh, you know, back in the very first of the, uh, of the discovery novels. And yeah, I was happy to go with it here. And, uh, I wanted to sort of show that, uh, yeah, she had these responsibilities, uh, on the ship, but that also she was kind of the true North, for uh pike sure uh because pike at least as we see him in the cage he is wobbling all around uh you know in terms of whether he's going to stay with this uh outfit or not how he should feel about it uh and then you know dealing with uh the uh the telosians just upsets it even further uh but she is always there to sort of be a different kind of uh, advisor or counselor, if you will, um, you know, one of the one of the one of the things that we uh, deal with in the book uh, is that uh, you know Pike is uh, lamenting uh, the fact that he is divided uh, from uh, from Una. And divided from also Doctor Boyce, right? Uh, who is his sort of you know confessor with a cocktail glass? Right. Uh, who yeah? Who who uh, you know they're they're not they're not in the same physical location, and he's having to make do uh, with you know both his communications with Spock, uh, who is you know we we established that they were not yet that close. And also, uh, you know, he gets to warm up to a character uh, that I got to create in its entirety, uh, and that is one of my favorite characters in the book, and that's uh, that's uh, Doctor Galagian, yeah. uh, the engineer. Oh, oh. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, and, and oh yeah, Doctor O, yeah, yeah. That's 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 another character that Robert Petkoff just when he when he does that voice, he just yeah. slays me. Uh, it's he he's he's everything I wanted in the character. Uh, but yeah, Una is uh, you know is sort of uh, you know this this part of his support system, uh, but she also exists on her own, and she gets a chance to try to hold 
you know, the, the rest of this cast together uh, on her own. And, uh, and then we see what happens when even she is not available uh, to help them. Uh, they're all just sort of like, okay, we're in trouble now. Oh man. Well, this, this time has, has flown by. We're coming up on the end of the hour that I promise. But uh, before I, I, I uh, say our ending salutations, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this, even though it's not strictly about Star Trek. But you, of course, wrote uh, one of the final Star Wars Legends novels, Kenobi, before that line was rebranded as Legends. And I know you said when conversations about Obi-Wan tend to flare up, it certainly helps feed sales of that book. But beyond that, how do you feel about new Obi-Wan stories in a format for for Disney streaming service, especially considering your direct role in in creating a very prominent one within the last several years? Well, I, you know, more Obi-Wan is always good. Uh, I'm excited to see it. I'm, I, you know, I've always said whether it's something that uh, I'm connected to or not, or whether it's something that, you know, draws in any way on what I've done or not, uh, you know, I will be in the audience and I will, I, I certainly... Uh, I think that uh, it is something that people have been asking for for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, as far as mm. as far as anything else connected to it, uh, you know, we'll see what the future holds, as they say, the uh, as 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 his as the little green guy says, uh, always in motion. The future is uh, <laughs> and uh, and and we'll see, uh, you know, I I I wrote that book, uh, you know, I I. I started writing that book actually in 2006 uh, as a graphic novel and really? it and it got longer and longer and longer uh, and I realized there's no way in the world that this will ever fit in anything short of a prose novel uh, and it ended up going on the shelf for six years uh, and uh, it did not come back until I was writing novels for uh, for Del Rey. Uh, and, and that's, that's when that happened. And it was a major, uh, risk at the time because, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, yes, it's a Western, it's, it's a Western romance. It actually, it, it takes place uh, over a long period of time. Um, although it, it only really has a few incidents in it, uh, that we, that we see him in, uh, it is mostly told through the point of view of other characters uh, and there are no lightsaber fights and there are no space battles. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, for people who were looking for a, you know, a story that had, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi rushing off to, to, to defend Luke Skywalker from, uh, from uh, you know, a Sith Lord or something like that, or people who are looking for him to go off world and start sneaking around from planet to planet. Uh, you know, uh, helping the rebellion, uh, you know, that was not going to be what they were going to get from this book. Cause that's not how I see the character, uh, or, or how I see this whole mm-hmm. period. I really see him as, uh, he is paying the price in his exile for, you know, his lack of vision, uh, to use the, the emperor's, uh, phrase for not seeing the danger that was out there. Uh, he is the he is not the new hope. He is the hope that failed, and he has to try to come to terms with that, uh, while also dealing with the fact that all of his friends are dead. And so, uh, and so that's the book that we wrote, and you know, it was embraced by the you know ninety five percent of fans who you know were interested in seeing that or or were open to seeing that. 
and uh, and you know it's still selling today, and I'm delighted about that. Uh, as for you know where they go with the TV show, uh, you know who knows. I I I and, and those who know would not would not be allowed to say anyway. <laughs> right. Well, uh, one other uh, hypothetical that I wanted to ask you real fast, because one of the other things that we learned coming out of Star Trek Las Vegas was that uh, some books that have been on ice for a while taking place in the Kelvin timeline uh, are now finally going to be released. Uh, is that uh, an area of the Star Trek universe that you'd be interested in playing in at all? Or are you more interested potentially in hanging your hat in the prime universe potentially as more new developments are now finally starting to come out for it? Uh, you know, everything is always a, uh, you know, I, I, I always have to battle this desire to be able to open up and write about as much stuff as possible uh, and have, and have the fewest constrictions uh, and have the most running room, so to speak. I, I'm always torn between that and also, you know, wanting to have more work by others to be able to draw upon uh, and, uh, and to, uh, to elaborate on uh, and, uh, and to connect to. And so, you know, that, that would be the challenge with you know, doing something in the Kelvin universe. It's one of, there's so much space available. There's so much time available. Uh, there's almost an opposite pressure going on uh, because, you know, you know that you, know, you don't want to, anything you do is going to leave an imprint uh, and, and, you know, you, you don't want to do anything that's going to make it impossible for them to do something uh, with a character or something uh, somewhere else. I mean, some character that has not yet appeared, say, in the Kelvin universe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Very understandable. Well, John, we can't thank you enough for, for being so generous with your time and talking with us about Enterprise War and some of the other things that you've had going on. And we're really excited that you've got another Star Trek Discovery book coming down the pike, no pun intended. Uh, where <laughs> can people find you online? And, uh, and, and what more do you think people should be taking a look at from you in the near future? Okay, uh, people can find me at farawaypress.com, where I have notes on many of my previous books, although I have not gotten that. Uh, I, I, haven't I haven't written any essays about any books more recent than Prey, so, uh, or, or rather more recent than Takedown. Uh, so uh, I will eventually get to those if I can just start. If I can get if I can get a month between writing novels, I'll I'll get I'll get more of those behind the scenes essays online. Uh, and on Twitter, they can find me at JJM Far Away. And also on Facebook, John Jackson Miller. Uh, and uh, you know, as for uh, as for what's coming up, uh, well, there's the aforementioned uh, Star Trek book for 2020. Uh, there's the aforementioned uh, Battlestar Galactica uh, graphic novel, which is called Counter Strike, uh, which is uh, going to be out from Dynamite. Uh, one of my Star when I Star Wars comics I did for kids. Uh, I did the Star Wars uh, annual uh, last year for IDW. That is coming out in a uh, collected edition from IDW, also like October or November this year as well. And, uh, you know, the the other things that I, I mentioned are in stores now. I've got, uh, as I say, I've got I've got uh, original graphic novels for Dumbo and, uh, and Lion King uh, that both came out uh, this year, this summer. And uh, so people can find those uh, in their bookstore or on Amazon or someplace else. Or in your local comic shop and uh, check there your you final go. order cutoff dates. <laughs> and thank you. 
Oh, it was it was our supreme pleasure to have you on, and hopefully we can uh, we can have you on again in the future when we got more Star Trek stuff to talk about. Uh, that would Sounds be good. That would be just a lot of fun. So uh, great. That's going to do it, everybody, for episode number 45 of Discovery Debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like and follow us on our social media channels. If you'd be so kind, we'd also appreciate it if you were to review for the show on iTunes or Facebook, since it only takes a minute, and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it is posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC Debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles. And feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes and be sure to join us as we convene next time to discuss the increasingly bright future of those bold adventures into the final frontier. As always, though, until we meet again, please go boldly my friends.